Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. things about practicing first thing in the morning is you get to wake up twice. <laughs> wake up out of bed and then we can wake up together in this way. Yesterday, uh, last night, I spoke about um, some of the first ways we can understand Dogen's teachings on time. And we started out looking at the first lines where he talks about the three heads and the eight arms. And maybe we can see that this morning. You know, there are oscillating experiences. Maybe wake up feeling great, and then the mind has an idea about that. Wow, isn't it nice coming down in the morning? There's going to be a good meditation practice, and I'm so spiritual. (laughs) I'm going to become a nun. And then, you know, 30 seconds later, other people are annoying and your stomach is too loud. And so you can actually um, find the way these opposites um, or these different bands of consciousness all, all exist in the same time. So... You can be a wrathful deity and a 16-foot body at the same time. Because in a way, they're just these momentary identification with these moods and these archetypes. Um, But actually, in the same time, you're both a wrathful deity and a 16-foot body. And that's hard to accept because... Most of the time, we only want to identify with one particular um, version of ourselves. But the problem is, is you know, these are all identifications. And so, um, 
if we're attentive to the way that life flows through us, um, and especially once we start to learn how to sit still, um, we start to see that it's not really possible um, to hang on to any of these versions of ourselves. And that things become much lighter when um, we can allow um, life to flow. So one of the practices um, that is a kind of fun thing to do, and um, I, I've never heard of it outside of uh, um, Chinese, Japanese, or Korean forms of, of Zen practice, but um, one of the common um, practices that somebody is given is to um, work on self-portraits. So um, I think probably the person who we know who does this uh, in a popular way is Leonard Cohen. Um, he carries a digital tablet with him that he plugs into his computer, and every morning uh, his first practice is to draw a self-portrait. And he's been doing this for several decades. You've probably seen them. Um, and this is a, a really helpful practice because um, it takes a while to create a self-portrait um, um, of ourselves that's not just um, identity with mood or time. So Dogen uh, wrote a self-portrait. And um, the title is uh, A Portrait of Myself. Listen carefully. Cold a lake for thousands of yards soaks up sky color. Evening quiet a fish brocade scales, reaches bottom, then goes, first this way, then that way. Arrow notch splits. Endless water surface, moonlight brilliant. I'll read it one more time. I said this is a self-portrait. Yes. Cold Lake for thousands of yards, soaks up sky color. Evening quiet, a fish of brocade scales reaches bottom, then goes, first this way, then that way, arrow notch splits. Endless water surface, moonlight brilliant. It's interesting that Dogen's self-portrait is of uh, a lake, um, as it's appearing to him in that particular scene. And not only is there no reference to himself, um, other than his universal natural world as self, um, it's also outside of time. Um, usually when uh, we try and do a self-portrait, uh, especially with words, um, we reference time. And um, 
we also show up in it. Versions of ourselves show up in it. So it's interesting how you can be a staff, a whisk, a 16-foot body, a wrathful deity, um, and also a lake. Um, another self-portrait. Um, this is by one of my favorite uh, writers named Philip Whalen. I can't live in this world, and I refuse to kill myself or let you kill me. The dill plant lives, the airplane, my alarm clock, this ink. I won't go away. I shall be myself, free, a genius, an embarrassment, like the Indian, the buffalo, like Yellowstone National Park. One more self-portrait. This is E.E. E. Cummings' self-portrait. The title of it is In Time of Daffodils. In time of daffodils, who know the goal of living is to grow, forgetting why, remember how. In time of lilacs, who, who proclaim the aim of waking is to dream, remember so, forgetting seem. In time of roses, who amaze are now and here with paradise, forgetting if remember yes. In time of all sweet things beyond, whatever mind may comprehend, remember seek, forgetting find. And in a mystery to be, when time from time shall set us free, forgetting me, remember me. So it's interesting, in Dogen's version, there's no reference to self, and there's no reference to time. And for Philip Whalen, it's entirely about self outside of time. And for E.E. E. Cummings, he takes on both time and the self <coughs> in the act of uh, remembering himself, losing himself, and finding himself again. So today... Um, I'm going to ask you to write a self-portrait. So, um, six lines or less. Um, and I'd like you to try and write a portrait of yourself um, without any reference to time. So not a recollection of a self you once were, or a self you might become, or um, you now in relationship to... Um, another version of yourself in the past or future. And I don't want you to copy Dogen. <laughs> um, and for our session tonight, uh, after dinner, um, 
I'm going to ask to hear some of the poems. They don't have to be poems, really, but six lines or less, self-portrait. Um, and please take it up today. And um, I'd like to encourage you uh, not to write um, until after the silent morning so that um, the poem can come to you um, uh, and you can take your time chewing on it. The words can come to you um, before you actually uh, set it down. I heard Gary Snyder once say that um, he never writes a poem down until after a couple of days. He tries to keep the poem in him moving in him for a couple of days before he puts it on paper. So we'll try that for the morning. Um, and, uh, and then this evening I would like to hear some of the, the versions. Maybe I shouldn't have told you that. <laughs> yeah. So let's look at the Dogen for a couple of minutes. Even though you do not measure the hours of the day as long or short, far or near, you can still call it 12 hours. Because the signs of times coming and going are obvious, people do not doubt it. Although they do not doubt it, they do not understand it. Or when sentient beings doubt what they do not understand, their doubt is not firmly fixed. Because of that, their past doubts do not necessarily coincide with the present doubt. Yet doubt itself is nothing but time. I really like the way he brings up doubt right at the beginning of this teaching. Um... We all know that um, part of um, being on a path is having faith. And um, usually we talk about faith as um, a kind of blind belief um, in a core set of values or in a worldview um, or some kind of belief system or theology that you have to commit to. One of the wonderful things, and I think one of the reasons why yoga is so popular um, has to do with this at some level that when we move our bodies and when we slow the mind down through breathing practices we come into direct contact with reality um, which creates a kind of joy um, and an interest in our lives without committing to any kind of belief system at the beginning anyways 
Um, so in a way, Dogen is talking here about faith in uh, time and timelessness. And so right off the bat, he has to bring up the twin of faith, which is doubt. And you can't really have faith without doubt. And doubt is like the healthy um, sister to faith when faith is wrathful. But I think Dogen take, takes this slight, uh, a little bit further than usual because usually we think that doubt is doubting what we have faith in. And we think of it usually in terms of theology. So, for example, um, if I have faith in uh, the hereafter, that when I die, um, I know where I'm going. Um, then once in a while, I might begin to doubt whether that's actually true. So, for example, um, in September uh, the 11th, when um, those planes were violently um, flown into the World Trade Centers, um, the men who flew those planes had faith that um, when they die, they were going to end up in um, a better world. And you can't critique their faith, because it was perfect faith. They knew where they were going, and their families received flowers and presents and gifts um, because uh, their children um, are in a better place. So sometimes we have a faith that's kind of unshakable, and there's sort of a healthy window that needs to be opened, and it's usually opened by other worldviews that um, allow us to doubt our faith. And we all know that that's a dangerous um, uh, game to get into. Some, we all know this at dinner parties, right? Where, you know, un everything's great until you start talking about politics. And then people's core values show up. But I don't think that's what Dogen's talking about here. So that's the way we usually think of faith and of doubt. Um... I think what Dogen is saying is something a lot uh, deeper and more psychological than just faith in a view. I think he's actually talking about the self. It seems what he's saying is, is that um, it seems that the doubt that he's talking about is not the doubt of your practice or of your belief system, but doubt in the person who is hearing these words having doubts about the person who's sitting in the room on a cushion right now, looking at a piece of paper. <coughs> so, not the kind of doubt that's the doubt that leads to indecision. <clears throat> Can I have a sip of water? Does somebody have a... Great. Thanks. Is this clean and... Uh... Oh, we're not going to tell you what diseases she has. It's too late. Um, thank you. Doubting ourselves, but not the kind of doubt that leads to waffling and indecision, 
But the healthy doubt, doubting who we think we actually are. It's amazing sometimes when things happen to us, like we find ourselves having the ability, for example, um, to um, put our foot behind our head. Uh, To have the ability to write, the ability to mother, the ability to father, the ability to listen. There are sort of genetic dispositions we all have um, where we've received maybe a talent. And then there's also a way where we identify with these patterns, these genetic codes, and we think we actually are that. Or maybe you have a career um, that in your community is really uh, respected. I am a lawyer. And then one day you lose your job. And then it starts to bring on a kind of existential doubt. Because we see that the self can't ground itself. Ever. In Tibetan Buddhism, this is called the hungry ghosts. That inside of all of us are hungry ghosts that can't ever be satisfied. You can't satisfy them. They're not satisfiable. That's why they're hungry ghosts. And the problem is not that there are hungry ghosts. The problem is that we try and feed them to satisfy them. Likewise, the same is true with ourselves. The self, because it's a changing story that is a mixture of our genetic code and the world that we're living in moment to moment, um, isn't groundable. Because it doesn't actually exist as a thing. And I think Dogen captures this in his self-portrait. It's a self-portrait of movement without it being fixed in time. So I would say the healthiest kind of doubt and, and really what this practice that we're doing encourages is a very deep kind of inquiry and questioning <laughs> where we're allowing doubt in, but it's not a doubt that creates indecision. It's the kind of doubt where we really question who and what we think we are. And of course, some of you may already be thinking this, who have studied Dogen, but you know his most famous passage um, goes like this. He says, to study the self, or sorry, to study the way, the way of course means uh, is, is Tao, which also means a road. Um, to study the way uh, is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. So I hope those of you who are therapists are listening to this. So the way, to really study the way is to study the self. But then he he says, why? You study yourself to forget about yourself. To forget the self. We all know people who study themselves and study themselves and study themselves. It was very expensive. Um, uh, 
and never forget themselves. You know? Um, I once went to see a psychoanalyst and he told me that if I didn't take my vacation time when he took his vacation time I had to pay for all the sessions in the the missed block (laughs) and I realized it was going to be very expensive to study myself (laughs) (laughs) and we all know this I mean you pay you can't even take a holiday you have to pay double time so um to study the self is to forget the self. And then he says, to forget the self is to be enlightened by 10,000 things. So when you forget yourself, you're touched by everything. And so he then follows us up with two lines that are my favorite of his. Um, He says, to go into the world and confirm it, this is delusion. And to go into the world without knowing, this is enlightenment. So when you go into the forest and you name everything, um, this is delusion. I usually translate it as confusion. This is confusion. And yet when you go into the world whether it's the forest or it's your community, and you don't know, then you're open to uh, what might be. This is a good practice for those of you in... uh, How many of you are in long-term relationships? I was just told, actually, there was just an insurance study done in the United States where um, apparently long-term psychotherapy is two sessions or more. (laughs) (laughs) That's how the curve hit the paper. Two sessions or more is considered long-term. So this is a good practice to do with your partner. Um, How many of you? Can I see the number? Okay. So um, how many of you in those relationships actually sleep in the same bed? You don't have to put your hand up. So here's a little practice you can do is when you wake up in the morning for the next week, wake up in the morning and look over at your partner um, without knowing anything. So wake up without bringing any of the past into your gaze. Do you think this is possible? You can look over and go, If you wanted to make this practice a little more complex, you could also not finish their sentences for a whole day. And it's interesting to to play around with this because you can see how um, the past comes in and really shuts down. Can really shut down um, a quality of connection. And the reason why we turn other people, we talked about this last night, into objects is so we can feel secure in ourselves. 
So I think this is what Dogen is after in this passage, which is a kind of radical doubting of the self. Michel Foucault has a wonderful term. He talks about um, transsubjectification. Not, I guess, maybe too technical, but but it's this idea he says where, when you have a sense of self, and the sense of self can see a sense of self, you are between two senses of self. And when you're between two senses of self, um, time dissolves. You get outside of subjectivity, briefly. And this is this amazing ability we have as human beings. To see ourselves, and to get to know ourselves, and to accept ourselves, and our history, and our idiosyncrasies. And then, in doing so, to forget about ourselves. To be free, or a genius, or to be Yellowstone National Park, to be Algonquin Park, to be Killarney, to be this room, this land, this particle board, and also sometimes a wrathful deity. Let's look at section three. Let's have somebody else read section three. Who would like to read? Okay. The way the self arrays itself is the form of the entire world. See, each thing in this entire world is a moment of time. Things do not hinder one another, just as moments do not hinder one another. The way-seeking mind arises in this moment. A way-seeking moment arises in this mind. It is the same same with practice and with attaining the way. Thus, the self sending itself out in array sees itself. This is the understanding that the self is time. So, um, there's a controversial translation here because Kaz um, translates uh, this, the word here as self. But actually, in other translations, it's kept as time being. So, the way time being arrays itself is the form of the entire world. So, the self um, arrays itself. Like... Philip Whalen sees himself as Yellowstone National Park. See each thing in the entire world as a moment of time. I don't know about you, but um, when I'm in a mood which happens sometimes, Um, I don't see that mood as a moment of time. Um, 
I usually see it as uh, me. I'm frustrated, and then I'm frustrated. I'm anxious, and I'm identified with being anxious. And so I don't see myself as simultaneously anxious and also a river. And I think so much of the time when we're, you know, we all have different feelings that we get overwhelmed by. Maybe for some of you it can be uh, greed or loneliness or uh, anger or sadness or, you know, we all have particular patterns that we get entangled in or hooked by. Um, Is it possible to uh, see these feelings and moods when they show up just as moments of time? Just as, you know, these um, contingent phenomena, coming together, coming apart, coming together, coming apart, coming together, coming apart. As opposed to saying, this is myself. (coughs) And when you wake up in the morning and you look over at your partner, to also see them coming together and coming apart as opposed to framing them in a particular uh, box. I I joined Facebook this past week, and... um, I don't know how many of you know Facebook, but probably most of you. <laughs> um, well, some of you are my friends, actually. <laughs> and uh, in Facebook, they have this, you know, section called um, Boxes. Have you seen this? I didn't know what it was, but I just had this idea like, oh, there's a section where, like, you could figure out all the boxes people put you into. And, like, if you could click on it, you could see all the personas you have or something. Anyways, that's not what it was, but um, I like this term now, boxes. And um, so just to see that, you know, all these boxes we create are moments of time, coming and going. In the same way that, you know, this morning we woke up, it was dark in here. And every once in a while, um, you suddenly were aware of the light change, you know. But we're not so aware of the gradual light change. It's like, oh, light changed, and then, oh, light changed, <laughs> you know? It's like, it's so hard for the mind to just enter in to change. It has to box it in, decide about it, and then let you know. So the self is constantly arraying itself, and it's happening in moments of time. But what I want to stress here is Dogen's uh, comment about the self as time arraying itself. Because I think sometimes um, we think about spiritual practice as a kind of repression of ourselves and our eccentricities and our idiosyncrasies. But actually I would say that in this practice it's exactly the opposite. 
that when we're really allowing ourselves um, to be one with whatever is occurring, um, all of our eccentricities and idiosyncrasies show up. And that from the perspective of Uji, this is healthy. So, so often people talk about Buddhist practice as a practice whose goal is compassion. And um, I've always felt that actually the goal of practice is um, eccentricity and creativity. And that compassion is not so much a goal, but actually the byproduct. When I set myself the goal of being compassionate, people don't like hanging out with me. <laughs> it's, it's a little bit like if any of you have friends who are like doing their psychotherapy training, it's like they're the worst people to hang out with. Because <laughs> they're so empathic that it's, it like, it gets sticky. Mm-hmm. Um, so instead of thinking of compassion as a goal that we're trying to attain, um, We also know that when we're relaxed in ourselves and being ourselves and not hiding parts of ourselves and not repressing parts of ourselves to maintain a particular image, um, when we're forgetting about ourselves, compassion arises naturally. Empathy arises naturally. Love arises naturally. And you know that the people who you like hanging out with... um, who probably accept you the most, are people who are comfortable in time. Um, And comfortable in themselves. I had some friends over um, recently, uh, and uh, I invited my mother to come and join us. And uh, she said afterward, you have the oddest friends. (laughs) (laughs) And it really warmed my heart. (laughs) I tell her she has odd friends for other reasons, but I thought that was such a great compliment. But isn't it nice sometimes when we hang out with our friends who are probably a little odd and it gives us permission to not have to be anyone? So the self arraying itself is time, it's time being. The nature of the self is it wants to array itself. And most of the time we think that this practice is putting ourself away. Um, But we also know that self-expression is so healing. And so I don't want you to even spend the day today having private experiences where you sit still staring at the floor and you have insights Um, that are kept inside. Um, Because that's only part of the practice. You know, 
And some of us, I'm one of these people, I think probably some of you attracted to meditation might have this pattern also, which is, you know, when the going gets tough, we can go sit and stare at the wall and go turn to our cushion. But actually, when the going gets tough, we also need the ability to turn to people and express ourselves. And um, this is also part of being human because we live in a realm of language. We're not trees. We can be trees sometimes. It's really great to be trees. But uh, we're also humans with this particular kind of language. And so part of this practice is also communicating. I know so many people who've done decades of meditation practice whose relationships just don't work because they don't express themselves. When things get hard, they just go sit on their cushion. So for our practice to be relevant, we also need to be able to array ourselves and to do this with language. And so today we're going to write self-portraits and we're going to share them. And, and in English. <laughs> no Sanskrit. Tita, did you have your hand up? Yeah. One of the things I kind of get confused about in terms of self-expression is kind of make a distinction between the self-expression that is um, not healthy and the self-expression that is. There's so much in our culture that really adulates self-expression that mm. is driven by anger, that mm. is driven by unhealthy passion. Mm-hmm. There is, I mean, there's so much, there's so much celebration of that, right? Yeah. In artists and Hollywood and everything. So it gets mm-hmm. a little bit confusing as to when is it the self that's really expressing itself? Mm-hmm. And when is it I get confused about those selves. So I like to think that my angry self is not myself. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. So I kind of work through that. I'm yeah. getting a muddle over that. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that comes to mind is, um, you know, I, I recently saw uh, an exhibit um, when I was overseas of Picasso. Uh, I'd never seen so much of his work all in one place. And um, in some rooms between the works, they also had uh, video and images of of his life. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I really enjoyed about the exhibit was here you have Picasso, who we all think of as, you know, a superior artist. Um, And one thing Picasso interrupted in the flow of artists of that lineage is he's not the tortured um, artist on the verge of taking his own life. Um, There was so much joy and so much community around him and so much fun and play. I mean, during his blue period, he was also, and I think people forget this, he was also um, making these amazing, joyful, colored masks that he used mostly for dancing with his family. Um, so, um, I think sometimes we have this idea that, um, you know, self-expression needs to be tortured for it to be art, um, or that eccentricity has to be advertised, you know, 
for uh, one to really express themselves. But, you know, our real eccentricities are not the ones we advertise. They're the ones that only people who are intimate with us really know. And they're the most important ones to share. However, um, and Dogen doesn't go near this, but um, certainly those of you, and I know you have, Tita, have been studying uh, the Yoga Sutra with me, um, we also know that when Patanjali talks about honesty, which is the second um, ethical principle he teaches, he treats it as the second principle, not the first principle, because the first thing he teaches is nonviolence. So our honesty is tempered by nonviolence. So our self-expression is tempered um, by the consideration of others. So that when we express ourselves, um, we're, uh, we take care in making sure that we're not just doing so without regard um, for who's on the other end of our words or what have you. Yeah. It's complicated because, you know, just the language that we have to use in terms of expressing the self. And, you know, because that can mean a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I guess how I try to think about it, and just as Tita was saying, you know, the the self in our culture currently is really glorified. You know, being an individual. Now fashion is not with the masses, but just being your, you know, expressing your own sense of fashion. And uh, so I guess when I think about this, about expressing the self, it has to do with sort of expressing oneself with a with consciousness, with an awareness. Mm-hmm. So that because it's hard to know sometimes what is. Um, what you are expressing, what is the motive, what is the motivation, what, you know what I mean? Like, what are you, it's hard to even talk about, really. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, the thing you're talking about, relationships, you can't, you cannot, I don't think, really have, in, you can't have intimate relationships without expression. But then it's how you express, and what are you expressing to mm-hmm. that other person. Exactly. And Dogen's going to deal with this a little bit further down, for those of you who'd read ahead. Are there any other questions or comments? I have one. Um, Typically, the notion of language, and specifically the idea of naming something, is 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 associated with the idea of fixing something, mm-hmm. which is associated with the idea of boxing something in, mm-hmm. which is associated with not non with notions of permanence. I suppose. Yeah. So how did I mean? It's I find it interesting that this actually the notion of language has come up because usually that those two things aren't put together because of this idea of naming and fixing. So how does mm-hmm. that work mm-hmm. um, in your mind in terms mm-hmm. of what arraying actually means as it relates to language expression or naming or fixing or anything? Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's really having some consciousness around our language. Mm-hmm. Um, because... Um, I think sometimes language in meditative practices gets a bad rap because we know that there are levels of concentration um, in meditation practice. 
that are free of language. And um, for those of you that have had tastes of this, you know, when there's really deep concentration, um, the language function comes to an end. And um, when language stops, um, when thinking stops, even though it's temporary, um, what's left is a, a real feeling of intimacy, you know, of connection uh, with everything. Um, um, I heard a story recently of somebody on a retreat who, um, whose real awakening experience was suddenly becoming one with oatmeal. <laughs> and every whole room became oatmeal, people became oatmeal, everything was oatmeal. And there was no language present, you know. Um, and that's beautiful when we have those kinds of experiences. Um, um, at the same time, those experiences are temporary. But because they get ratcheted up mm-hmm. as like the most important thing that can happen to you, um, language starts getting a bad rap. Because we think that, oh, well, language is just, you know, interrupting everything. But I think what happens is, is we, we start to get some consciousness, or some awareness around language and how we're using language. Um, and that allows us to be uh, a little more free and also precise mm. with our language. Um, and to see how it's problematic. But you still keep using it. And um, the same is true with storytelling. When we are always telling stories to ourselves about ourselves, it's not helpful. You know, it's not helpful. Um, because it interrupts a kind of um, uh, sensitivity to what's going on, moment to moment to moment to moment. However, we all need a story about ourselves. You don't want to be one with a car on a highway. Um, you want to have a story about the separation of your body and a truck. Um, And there are moments where it's good for that to fall apart, but not when you're driving or jaywalking or whatever. So in other words, there's nothing wrong with storytelling when you're aware of the fact that it's storytelling. There's nothing wrong with language when you're aware of how it's being used. And usually the way we become aware of how it's being used is other people. They'll tell us. Um, Even Dogen says about language, he says, what is language? He says, just words. Some have two letters, some have three letters, some have five. And I love that because that response is putting so much value and appreciation of language because he's sarcastic with it. Oh, language, two letters, three letters, some five. Um, Valuing it and also seeing it. Because there are things that words can't get at. And we all know that. Um, Again, for those of you that are therapists, we know how language can get us to this point of connection, but often in moments of real healing, there's nothing to say. It's like uh, after you've had an argument and then you make up and then you're done processing 
some people are never done processing, but <laughs> if you're able to stop it. <laughs> I have a friend whose email address used to be Process Queen. Um, you, you, you finish processing, and then there's, um, there's nothing left really to say. Um, do you remember that feeling when you're a little kid and you have a really strong cry, and then it finishes? And then you feel clean, you know, like the pipes have been cleaned out. And then we're back in language again. Yeah. So don't set up a hierarchy with the language and non-language experience. And uh, that's a danger, especially in meditation practice. So in the formal practice, when you're sitting, you know, you want your eyes fixed, staying with your breath, and we want to forget about language over time. And that will just start happening naturally. Um, but when you're walking down um, Young Street, you know, don't keep your eyes fixed and, you know, breathe specially and, you know, you know, be free. Be Yellowstone National Park. Well, not when you're on Young Street, on Young Street. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> One more comment or question. question about, about uh, choice. And it seems to me that um, in the unfolding of life through the awareness of self or the self-experience, there's a choice what you pay attention to and how not to make that wrong. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Do you want to say a little bit more? I'd like to hear you, what, what, what you think about that. Could you say it a little louder, please? Oh, I'm sorry. Um, Thank you. My question, which it was a question, not mm-hmm. a comment, is about choice, because it seems that as we experience whatever is happening around us and through us, there's a choice what you pay attention to. Yeah. And I guess it goes, maybe what you're saying about not making a hierarchy. Uh-huh. Um, not making it wrong what you pay attention to. Yeah. It seems to me, well, I come in and out of awareness, or in and out of presence, and yeah. you know, get lost in other places, or, rather than just being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The power, really, of being able to see that you have a choice Mm. when you're gripped is quite profound. Um, Sarah and I did a co-Dharma talk um, where uh, I gave a talk about choice, and she read um, a wonderful um, uh, essay which was actually a commencement speech uh, by David Foster Wallace, um, who uh, talked about how our freedom um, is in recognizing um, the choices we have in any given moment. And the example he uses most prominently in that essay is being stuck in traffic behind an SUV. 
and all of the different thought patterns that arise. And so he starts off by giving all the, you know, thought patterns that arise for most of us probably in here, which is, you know, the size of the car, how much room it's taking up, the exhaust pipes, how much gas it's burning, what kind of person, you know. And then seeing how in that moment you can also have a choice and, and then tells a story about how this person may have been in a horrible car accident and now drives a car to protect themselves, how their daughter is sick and on her way to the hospital and is just trying to get there. And, and you know, I won't give you all the examples. You should read the, the essay. Apparently it's published now in a little, uh, a little gift book, which you can probably pick up. Yeah, do you sell them? Okay. They look like the kind of things you keep beside the cash. Yeah, you know. that miniature. Oh, okay. There you go. Yeah. Um, and the, what I loved so much about this is just this recognition that uh, our freedom has to do with recognizing that in any given moment we have a choice of what we're going to pay attention to. And when you start to see that choice, especially in meditation practice, you start to see that... Um, you know, so often we're making the wrong choice. You know, we're paying attention to these habitual mm. flows that we're totally unconscious of. And, um, and what happens in meditation practice, especially over the years, is the old flows start to become exhausting. And, um, and we see how they don't work. And then we give them up. But we don't give them up like people on a diet who are working so hard to stick to not eating wheat or whatever, um, and they live above a pastry shop, you know. But <laughs> rather, like, you give it up just because you see that it doesn't work anymore. Yeah. And You just let it go. But then how well, you don't let it go. Yeah. It just goes. You know what I mean? How like, to make it wrong is the point that I want. How to make it wrong. How not to make it wrong. Yeah. Well, you have to start with the assumption that you're going to make it wrong. You're going to, or, you know. Just like this term nonviolence means there is going to be violence. You know, you're going to make it wrong. And so because you're going to make it wrong, you need to really look at that choice you're making. And then over time we start to see, especially when we see it from a place of stillness, wow, here's this choice I'm making over and over again. But if I approach that, there's this choice I'm always making and it's wrong. You know, that, there's no help, no help in that. There's no space there. So just to see the wrongness of the choice you know, and know that you're going to make it again. You know. Does anybody ever have this, like with boyfriends or something? <laughs> I've been dating the same person like seven times over, and I know I'm going to do it again. <laughs> yeah. So what can I do? Yeah. It's the judging mind. Yeah, condemning mind. The problem with the judging mind is if the main, and you know, and we all have this to, in different degrees, but if your main lens is judgment, then the tendency is when you see it, you're going to judge it. Mm 
So it's like you see that you're judging a lot, and then you judge that. <laughs> and then you judge that. Yeah. And that's why Dogen says, you study the self to forget about the self. You know? I mean, when a self-judgmental person goes into therapy, you know, the tendency is they leave sessions just judging themselves even more. You know? If it's not if it's not seen as a pattern from a place of quietude. You see? And, and this is true for the perfectionist. You know, the perfectionist sees their imperfections and then wants to make them perfect and then watches that from the place of not being perfect. And, you know, the anxious person gets anxious about their anxiety. And, you know, this is what tends to happen. And that's what's so powerful about meditation practice, because it's not just noticing something, but it's noticing how we're noticing something. And in noticing how you're noticing something, choices you can see the choices that you're making. Yeah. For those of you, you know, with, with a lot of meditation experience, you also know that there's this amazing thing that happens in meditation practice where once you can start to see thoughts come and go, if there's a lot of quietness in the mind, you can actually see the origination of a thought. And you can actually see space and the origination of a thought. And um, there's actually a little meditation technique for people who, always on retreat, some people start having this experience, and one of the, the instructions that you'd give somebody like this is to, to go into the body and to try and find the place where your thoughts are coming from. You know? And this is an amazing practice. Um, but there has to be a lot of quietness to be able to actually really do that. So the place of the faith that you talked about earlier is the faith that that place actually exists. That's, uh, you don't have to find it when you're talking about the mind yeah. that's judging itself. There's another mind yeah. that's bigger than that that notices that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's all different vocabularies you can use to talk about that. Small mind, big mind, yeah. uh, small yeah. self, big self, you know, it's what have the, you. the faith that, that that actually, you don't have to create it, that actually is, yeah. is what, where the data comes in. Yeah. Yeah, if faith is conceptual, then there's always going to be doubt about it because it's conceptual. And so there ha- I mean, we doubt it. Um, but, uh, you know, what I was getting at with the doubt piece was having doubt about the self itself. Um, and that the faith in conceptual ideas is an attempt to ground a self that can't be grounded. It's trying to provide some permanence in a world that is totally contingent and changing. And it drives us mad. Because, I mean, I want to know what's going to happen. And so I have my bank account, and I have my wife, and I have my house, and I have my trophies. And, you know, And my faith in those things creates a deeper sense 
of unsatisfaction. So then I need another house and a second wife. (laughs) Cocaine is really helpful in those situations. Um, But again, so, so the more we rely on these structures of permanence, um, the deeper our doubt becomes and the deeper our discontent, our dukkha, becomes uh, more uh, thorny because we're going in the wrong direction. Yeah. But you but you got to do that in order to see it sometimes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unfortunately, that seems to be the way it works. <laughs> you have to date seven people that are identical before you recognize it. Seven? Yeah. Okay, six. Yeah. I've had seven high school sweethearts. <laughs> Okay. Any other questions or comments, concerns? Yeah, okay. I kind of just wanted to share this because it's one of the things that I've been working through. Um, for the longest time, I kind of thought that this whole practice, or not practice, but just general awareness, was kind of getting over our biology that we don't understand and our conditioning, mm-hmm. literally unconditioning ourselves. And lately I've just had this sense, maybe it's an insight, but you know what, just kind of um, lighten up a bit, because that biology is really part of us, and that conditioning is really part of us, and there's an incredible mystery there about ourselves Mm -hmm. that I've found quite comforting, actually, Mm -hmm. it's not to fight it as much as to just look at it as mysterious and Mm -hmm. sometimes unmanageable, but you know... So I just wanted to share that with people, just in Mm -hmm. case people were having the same problems I had with judging my biology and my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Yellowstone National Park. Mm. Gary Snyder has this wonderful distinction he makes between uh, natural and wild, where he says, you know, everything is natural. Clocks are natural. Um, nuclear bombs are natural. Everything human beings create is natural. And um, But what he talks about is what we actually need to return to is not natural, but the wild. What's wild? Uh, we need to have wild places to go to, and we also need to return to the wild in ourselves. You know, Not what's natural necessarily or biological or cultural. I mean, that all just gets so conceptual depending on your culture but actually to find the places in you that are wild. It's like if you ever uh, go to uh, a dance party uh, with people who practice yoga, it's like so stiff. People are like dancing. (laughs) 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 So even in the movements of your body and how you speak, to find that place that's wild. And so to write your self-portrait from that place. Yeah. 
Marcia. I work a lot with moms, and, mm -hmm. um, and I'm a mom myself. And one of the things that a lot of mothers are really shocked by is that having a baby and breastfeeding a baby mm -hmm. really connects you to how we are wild, like how just so many things our bodies do and the way we connect with our babies when we take our heads out of it are yeah. just so, it's all there. It's our heads that mess stuff up, but yeah. it's all there. Yeah. And it, it really helps to connect with the wild in us. Yeah. I remember that experience when my son's mother first was breastfeeding. And uh, I remember looking at this engorged breast that we had put cabbage leaves on to cool, and they were like steamed in 30 seconds. And then uh, Arlen uh, suckling, and I remember thinking, oh, that's what they're for. <laughs> it was like uh, actually having the experience of seeing um, biology. And we also know, too, that the milk changes depending on what the infant needs. Mm -hmm. That has nothing to do with the mother. Mm -hmm. yeah. So let's wrap up. So um, what I'd like to do is let's just, I want to do have one more period of, uh, a short period of meditation. So let's just take a, a couple of minutes if you need to stretch or move your legs or stand up. We'll take two minutes.